On this day, some 2,000 years ago, Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross outside the city of Jerusalem. For the sake of discussion, I want to ask a question that might at first sound irreverent, but I think it's important, and here's the question. Who cares? Here's why I ask this. During the time of Jesus, the Roman Empire crucified thousands of Jews. Thousands. We can mourn that as being awful and disgusting. It is. But it's not unique to be crucified by the Romans during the time of Jesus. It's just another barbaric scar on the face of human history. So why then do Christians cling to the events of this day, the events of Jesus' death on a cross, as so particularly precious? Why do we find the events of his crucifixion so incredibly meaningful? Here's the answer. Jesus' crucifixion is uniquely valuable because of who he is. Who Jesus is infuses all the meaning into this moment. And we see so much of who he is and therefore understand so much of what he's doing in the circumstances surrounding this day of the cross. And I want to see that with you again tonight. And we're going to do it through the eyes of one of Jesus' closest friends, the Apostle John. Uh, John tells us that often when someone was nailed to a Roman cross, a tablet with their crimes was hung around that person's neck or maybe nailed to the beam above his head. And that tablet would have written on it the reason that person was there. The tablet would have on it the the verdict on why that person is hanging on a cross. And in Jesus' case, it was no different. He had a tablet nailed to his cross telling everyone why he was crucified. Do you know what Pilate, the Roman governor, put on that tablet to declare why Jesus was there? This is what Jesus' tablet read. It said, Jesus of Nazareth the king of the Jews. There's no crime listed, no sentence of guilt, just a description of his identity. He's the king of the Jews. Now, of course, Jesus' enemies had asked that that sign could be changed to, hey, wait, can we just say he claimed to be king of the Jews? But Pilate insisted, oh, no, uh, in part probably to mock the Jews, this pathetic, tore-up person is your king. And also I think Pilate was being a little vengeful because they forced his hand. And yet the ironic truth is that this really is why Jesus was hung on the cross. It's not just the claim of who he is, it's the reality of who he is as king, and this is why the cross is so incredibly meaningful. 
He was killed because he's the king. He was killed as the king. So I want to see four things with you tonight about our king and what it means for how to respond to him. The first thing we want to see together is that Jesus is the haunting king. The second thing to see is Jesus is so often the rejected king. The third thing to see, Jesus is God's king. And finally, Jesus is the victorious king. He's the haunting king, the rejected king, God's king, the victorious king. And as we look in on what Jesus' kingship means on this day of the cross, I also want you to ask, ask these questions. Is he my king? How so? Why or why not? What does that mean? The haunting king, the rejected king, God's king, the victorious king, is he your king tonight? So let's begin thinking of the haunted king. I'm going to start with John 19, verses 1 to 4. John 19, verses 1 to 4. We'll just work through section after section together to understand this passage. Here's John 19, 1 to 4. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I'm bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Now, we're jumping right into the middle of the story. As you see already, Jesus is being abused. But you need to realize that at this point, Pilate is actually trying to get Jesus released. And this is his attempt at that. A little background to the story so far. Jesus has been unjustly arrested by Jewish religious authorities. He's been, uh, had a sham trial, proclaimed guilty and sent now to the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, because the Jewish leaders need Pilate to be the one who orders Jesus' execution. And so they are working to motivate him in the language he speaks, which is politics. They're trying to convince him that Jesus is a political threat and that for Pilate to be faithful to Caesar, he needs to put down the threat. As we see from the previous chapter, Pilate does not buy their story at all. He's not sold that these religious leaders all of a sudden have these new pro-Roman motives. And he does not at all see Jesus as a threat. In fact, he continually and repeatedly states he finds no guilt in Jesus. He believes Jesus to be innocent of all their claims, and he wants Jesus released. So, he decided to work for Jesus' release through shame and pity. He's working for Jesus' release through shame and pity. So in order to show everyone that Jesus is no political threat, we'll just teach Jesus a lesson. We'll let him go. So he has Jesus flogged. Uh, You might know that there's different kinds of Roman whippings. Wonderful place to be when there's different varieties of whippings. This one is not the shocking verberaccio that you've thought of maybe with the, those leather straps, right, and the bone and the nails and the rocks. That's what they would do right before crucifixion. It would rip your back apart, rip you to shred, exp- uh, expose your organs, could even kill you. That's right before the cross. That's not this one. This one is called 
Fustigaccio. And maybe it's sort of like caning. It's meant to teach you a lesson. Beat you up and teach you a lesson. And in this flogging, Jesus is repeatedly subject to the abuse of Roman soldiers. You know, just being locked in a room with a bunch of Roman soldiers and letting them have their way with you is terrifying to me. But guess what they're mocking him about? It's a theme throughout the entire story. They're mocking him about what? Being king. So they shove a ring of thorns inches long into his, the crown of his head. The blood would have streamed down his face. But it's a mocking crown, mocking him as king. They put a purple robe on him just to make fun of him, just to laugh at him, mocking him as king. So after the shameful treatment, Jesus would look horrific. Um, he's been up all night. He's bloodied. He's beaten. Now we see John 19, 5. Pilate presents Jesus. So Jesus came out, back to the crowd, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. And what I think Pilate means here is, this pathetic Beat up prisoner is what you're all worked up about. This is the threat. And Pilate is trying to communicate, I think, to the, to the crowd. He's nothing. And I have him completely under control. And he's hoping that as the crowd sees Jesus in change, beat up, that they'll have a little bit of compassion or at least the fire will go out and they'll be willing to let him go. So Pilate says, behold the man, almost um, in mockery. And yet, and we see this so many times in the Gospel of John, don't we? Um, he says something, but he doesn't know the full meaning of what he said. Think of those words. Behold the man. There he is. This is literally the man. This is the Son of God is put on human flesh. This is the Lord and creator of the universe in human skin. In his character, this is the ultimate man. This is what every human should aspire to be. This is the only mediator between God and man. This is the king. Behold the man. But this attempt by Pilate only further outrages the religious leaders and their crowd. We'll look now at John 19, 6 to 7. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him! Crucify him! Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die because he has made himself the Son of God. First, we see the crowd's hatred and the source of their hatred. You have to really hate someone to want them crucified. Crucify him. It's the ultimate and shameful, torturous execution. Crucify him. Why? Did you see his, his crime? He made himself to be the son of God. He made himself to be equal with the father. He made himself out to be the promised king, the king of all kings. 
And that's why they want him dead. It's so interesting to see Pilate's response. Look at verse 8. When Pilate heard this statement, what statement? He made himself out to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he is even more, what? He's afraid. He's afraid. He's afraid of the man he just had whipped. He's afraid of the man in chains. Pilate is haunted by Jesus. Pilate has this horrid, terrible suspicion that Jesus is far more than he appears in this moment. Pilate has this terrible feeling that Jesus is someone who puts a unique claim on Pilate's life and choices. And Pilate has to deal with this. So he gets one more chance to seek the truth. He enters the headquarters again with Jesus. Verse 9. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave no answer. What a question. We already know that Pilate knows what city Jesus is from. He's Jesus of Nazareth. Where are you from? It means so much more than that. What are you about? Who are you? Jesus gives no answer. You know, you think of all the trials Pilate has heard and all the guilty and innocent people who have pled their case to him and begged him for release. Please anything but crucifixion. I don't think he's ever seen a prisoner like this who says, as he sits there peacefully, nothing. Jesus won't argue or escape for escape or beg for mercy or curse in anger. So Pilate is, he's struggling here. Look at verse 10. Pilate says to Jesus, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Pilate's kind of being, do you see what he's arguing for in the presence of Jesus? It's so strange, it's so ironic. Jesus is beaten up, he's in chains, he's a prisoner, and Pilate is arguing to him his own authority. Don't you see, Jesus? My authority. This is what we always do with Jesus. I've got to be authority over my life, and yet we're haunted by the reality that he's the king. Don't you know the power I have over you? Jesus' response is amazing. Pilate said, I'm a Roman governor. Don't you, you're nothing. Don't you know? Look at what Jesus says in verse 11. Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Wow. Therefore, he who has delivered me over to you has the greater sin. So Pilate is arguing for, rationalizing over his own authority, and Jesus just tells him the truth. Pilate, you are not king at all. You are under the sovereign power of the true king. 
Pilate, you aren't even the main culprit in this story. You're still guilty. You're still responsible. But Caiaphas, the high priest, he's far more guilty. He knew far more. But Jesus is saying as he sits there, bloodied, you, Pilate, are part of someone else's plan. There's a higher king here. Pilate, no matter your fight for your own self-rule, you are not the king. Look at, look at Pilate's response to this in verse 12. Now Pilate is very concerned. <laughs> He's never heard anything like this. Verse 12, from then on, Pilate sought to release him. To release him. And I think we see here that in a way, Jesus is the haunting king. He's a haunting king. So in that moment, from one point of view, Jesus is unimpressive. He has no political power. He has no armies. One follower betrayed him. The rest of his followers abandoned him. Now he's beaten to a pulp. At another level, though, he was undeniable. His miracles, his teaching, his character, his composure. There was something undeniable about Jesus, even for this pagan Roman governor. And the more Pilate considers Jesus, the more Pilate is concerned and bothered and haunted. And he can't help but think, I owe this man something. I owe him my allegiance. This is a serious lesson for us tonight. In many ways, in our world, in our lives, it doesn't look like Jesus is king. Think of all the evil and suffering in the world, all the chaos. And even sometimes his people, his church, can look pretty pathetic. And you might think, ah, Christians are hypocrites, all the evil and suffering in the world, no reason to deal with Jesus. If you consider him at all, you'll find there's no one like him. And the more you look at him without commitment, the more you will be haunted by him. And maybe you're a little bit like Pilate and you're fighting for those reasons why you should be the authority and stay in control of your life. And you need to realize tonight, you're not the king. Take, take Pilate's ironic advice. Behold the man. If you're haunted by Jesus tonight, ask God to show you more of who he is and be courageous enough to follow the truth where it leads. Jesus is the haunting king. He's not only the haunting king, he's the rejected king. We're going to look now at verses 12 to 16. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, If you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold your king, they cried out. Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. 
So as the scene begins, the Jewish leaders see that Pilate wants to release Jesus, so they play their trump card. Pilate, we know historically, was not always in the good graces of Caesar. And so the Jewish leaders are saying, hey, listen, Jesus claims to be a king. That gets in Caesar's way. If you let him go, we will let your authorities know, and Caesar will not approve. And given that Pilate has already been in political trouble, he now has a hard choice to face. He has a choice between his honesty with Jesus or his political career. It does not seem that he can have both. He knows in his heart Jesus is innocent. He's haunted that Jesus is something more. But he fears this trouble with the crowds and this trouble with Caesar. And now Pilate has to crown his true king. And Pilate's true king is revealed in his response to the ultimate king. Pilate chooses political future over Jesus. And let me just tell you, it wasn't worth it. And Jesus is rejected as king. But Pilate isn't the only one to reject Jesus for a counterfeit king. Look at the religious leaders. Pilate mocks the Jews, behold your king, pitiful and bleeding. And they give this shocking answer. They shout, crucify him. Pilate's digging at them. Shall I crucify your king? Look what they say. This is incredible. The Jewish religious leaders actually say, we have no king. But who? Caesar. Oh, the Jewish leaders would have claimed love for God. They would have claimed hatred of Roman rule. They would have claimed hatred of Roman idolatry. They would have claimed hatred of Roman abuse. But they hate the kingship of Jesus so much that in this moment they claim allegiance to their enemy, Caesar. Wow. But Jewish leadership here and Pilate serve as the example of what happens all the time. Jesus is the rejected king so often. The world is haunted by the reality that Jesus is so different than anyone else, so different than any other religious leader. But when push comes to shove, how often do we choose counterfeit kings? I want that lifestyle. Got to keep my own authority. Jesus is rejected. I want that independence, that status. I want to live for that crowd. I want that relationship I shouldn't be having. I want that um, life choice he denies. I want that devotion to politi politics. I, I, want, I want a different king than Jesus. That's the sinful heart. We leave Jesus on the sideline as a rejected king. But learn here from the example of Pilate. He said so many of the right things, and he even had some good intentions. But he's remembered for what he did. And he washed his hands of Jesus. Being open to Jesus for a moment, thinking nice thoughts about Jesus sometimes, is not enough. Is he your king? Jesus is the haunting king, the rejected king. But that doesn't change this ultimate reality. Jesus is God's king. We'll start here at the end of 16, go to 18. So they took Jesus, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the Place of the Skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, 
There they crucified him with two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. So now this ugliest moment in human history, Jesus is flogged, verberaccio, and ripped to shreds. Those cat and nine tails and crucified. And every sinful heart gets what it always wanted. And we pause before the darkest moment in the history of the world. But John immediately takes our gaze to details we might think at the moment were uh, trivial. And in the, in the picture of this evil, who cares about these details? Look at verses 23 to 24. When the soldiers had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and divided them into four parts, one part for each soldier, sh- soldier. also his tunic. But the tunic was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. So they said to one another, let's not tear it, let's cast lots for it to see whose it shall be. Who cares? Who cares about a shirt? The soldier just grabbing their plunder. But look at the next line. Oh, friends. This was to fulfill the scripture. This was to fulfill the scripture? Gambling for a shirt? This? Yeah. This was to fulfill the scripture was said, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This was to fulfill the scripture. Scripture, God's word, God's plan, recorded hundreds of years before, coming true now, being filled up here now, proving itself now, now in the midst of this evil, in the smallest Detail, right here, the fulfillment of ancient promises show us the moment of the cross. It's not some horrid accident. Jesus is God's king, and this is God's plan. Let's look briefly at some of the prophecies that are fulfilled here. Verse 24, the gambling for his shirt, reminds us of Psalm 22. There King David writes, as a prophet, Psalm 22, 16 to 18. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They pierced my hands and feet. I can count on my bones. They stare and gloat at me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. This is incredible. A prophecy that God's king would be surrounded by enemies, suffer, somehow be pierced, clothing gambled for. Friends, this is written centuries before Jesus. Crucifixion wasn't even invented yet. And yet it looks just like Jesus' cross. You can see his bones. He's beaten. His skin is pulled out. He's been pierced and he's mocked. And he gambled for his shirt? There's another example in John 19, 28 to 29. We see after, Je- after this, Jesus, knowing, now, knowing that all was now finished, he said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. He said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. Which was it? Was he totally dehydrated from being whipped and crucified? Yes. Or is, is he fulfilling God's eternal plan? Yes. Verse 29, a jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. 
And this would remind you of Psalm 69, 20. Listen there, this prophecy of the king. Psalm 69, 20. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. Look at this, verse 21. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me what? Sour wine to drink. John is showing you something. He's showing you that amidst all the chaos and evil, every single detail of the moment is under God's sovereign control. Jesus is not dying as a failed leader who tried but left everyone disappointed. The seemingly trivial details of his death are on purpose because he is God's eternal king accomplishing God's eternal plan. Even who Jesus is with speaks to who he is and why he's crucified. He's hung between two thieves. We remember what Isaiah said in chapter 53, Isaiah 53 verse 12. I will divide him a portion with the many and he shall divide the spoil with the strong why because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercessors or intercession for the transgressors here we see the reason god's king is dying on this cross He's dying as a substitute for sinners. He is taking the sin of sinners upon himself. He is bearing the reproach of the Holy Father in heaven on his cross for every single sin every one of his people have ever or ever will commit. He is taking their sin upon himself so that through repentance and faith, they can have his perfect righteousness. That's why he's here. And now you just see the love of Jesus through this whole moment. He went through that betrayal for you. He went through that sham trial for you. He get beaten and mocked for you. He get his back ripped open for you. Did he carry that cross for you? Did he take upon himself the wrath of God for you? And the answer is yes. He's God's king. And what a king. What a loving king. You know, maybe one of the most beautiful moments is in the end of verse 24 here to verse 27. You know, I get a little self-focused if I have to go to the dentist, right? I feel sorry for myself. I'm thinking about my own needs. Maybe you're like that. If something happens in your life that's difficult for you, you kind of, it's time to take care of yourself, you know. Suck your thumb a little bit. Jesus is on the cross, and look who he's thinking of. The soldiers did these things, verse 24, verse 25, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and disciple whom he loved standing nearby, that's most likely John, He said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. It's it's kind of a sideline detail. 
But what John is showing you is Jesus' heart for those he loves, even in providing for his mom while he's hanging on a cross. He's a faithful king. He's a loving king. He's a caring king. And this is what we need to see as we know him as a haunting king. And we see him sometimes as a rejected king. What king that you would choose over Jesus is better than Jesus? What king that you would prefer over Jesus is going to treat you better than Jesus? Who's going to die for you? Who's going to love you? Who's going to give you his father, his kingdom? There's nobody better than Jesus because he's God's king. He's the haunting king, the rejected king, God's king. And as God's king, he's victorious king. There's only one verse left for us tonight, verse 30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. You know, in a way, Jesus wasn't murdered. In a way. In a way, Jesus wasn't killed. And the reason for that is, what human was honestly strong enough to take his life? Who's going who's gonna to force the divine king to death? The only way he's going down is if he goes down on purpose. The only reason he's dying is if he gives up his own life. And the reason he died on the cross, it's ironic. It's because he claimed to be God's king and people hated that. But that's not even the real reason. The real reason he died on the cross is because he is actually God's king who is saving God's people according to God's plan. And in doing so, he was perfectly victorious. That's what it is finished means. It means something like mission accomplished. I can die now because I've done everything I needed to do. He laid down his life for his sheep, and he accomplished everything that they will ever need. He died because he's the king who was saving his people and reconciling his entire creation to himself through his death. And in dying, he was victorious. He was victorious. Hear this. Listen to this. Every single thing, every one of God's people will ever need for salvation and eternal happiness with God forever was fundamentally accomplished and became as good as done through Jesus' death on the cross. It was finished. It's done. All creation will be reconciled and renewed because he died. Faith was bought for cold, rebellious hearts because he died for them. Every sin from every one of God's people was dealt with and forgiven. There's not one of God's people who will be lost or who won't be forgiven or who won't be brought near, or who won't be taken all the way to glory because Jesus died for them. Access to God was acquired. 
Adoption was enabled. Sanctification, life transformation was made possible. Future resurrection was incoming for Jesus in three days for his people at his return because he accomplished his victory on the cross. It's finished. It's finished. It was done. The veil was torn. And it'll be vindicated by the resurrection. Why is Jesus' cross so precious, so epic, so valuable? It's because of who he is. And who is he? He is God's victorious king. So I want to ask you tonight, is he your king? If not, have a look at him, behold him. Give up on other kings and trust in him tonight. His perfect life for you. His death on the cross for you. His incoming resurrection for you. You're, you can be his and have all that he's done by his grace, undeserved love, through faith, repentant trust in him. And if he is your king, celebrate him again. Celebrate him again. He won the victory for you on that cross. It's finished. Do you know you don't have to make yourself right with God? It's finished. Do you know you don't have to atone for your sins? It's finished. You know you don't have to wonder if he's going to keep you all the way to the end. It's finished. You know you don't have to doubt if you can come to your father in prayer. It's finished. It's finished. He won the victory. And that's why we love him and what he did for us on this day so much. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending us your king. You sent the very best, the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. We want him to be our king tonight. He is our king tonight. He's still king, reigning right now one day. He'll reign explicitly as he returns. We thank you for this king. We pray for those who are haunted by him that they trust him even tonight and know his victory in their lives. For those who know him already, Lord, give us a, just a new sense of security and, uh, and praise and wonder at who our King is and what he's done for us. Uh, bless us tonight as we worship you and continue our worship. Lord, we give you praise. King of kings, you are the great King. You're the victorious King, and we love you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.